Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with William Ackworth, Head of Secretariat at the International Carbon Action Partnership, or ICAP, which recently released its 2021 status report on emissions trading worldwide. For the second year in a row, we're highlighting this report, and we'll talk to William about a wide range of issues. He'll get us up to speed on the recently launched nationwide trading system in China, along with programs from elsewhere in Asia, Europe, and the Americas. We'll talk about how markets have responded to the pandemic, where prices might be headed, and how markets are expanding to cover new sectors like buildings and transportation. Stay with us. Okay, William Ackworth joining us from the International Carbon Action Partnership. Thank you so much for coming on today to Resources Radio. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, William, we're going to talk today about your organization's annual status report on emissions trading around the world. But before we do that, uh, we always like to ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues in the first place. So kind of what's your story? Um, sure. So, yeah, for me, I think it goes back to the the choice I made after high school in terms of what university degree to pursue. And I was looking for something that combined both um, my interest in economics and also environmental science. And the Sydney University had just started a program called Resource Economics. And through this program, I became fascinated by what economics can actually teach us about how to solve public policy challenges. And I had the opportunity also as an internship um, as part of the program to work with the economics unit at the World Wildlife Fund. And here we were looking into what you could learn from the Montreal Protocol, so the Global Agreement on Ozone Depleting Substances, um, to sort of inform the climate change policy space. And yeah, I found this just to be a really fascinating and challenging question and never really looked back. That's great. So, you know, many of us at RFF can identify with that uh, that line of reasoning. So uh, you're definitely in good company here. And um, as I uh, mentioned during the introduction, last year around this time, we spoke with your colleague, Stephanie Laus-Toyer, when you released ICAP's 2020 status report on global emissions trading. And when we had that conversation, I think we were just starting to enter our first lockdowns. Everything was in flux. It's really been quite a year since then. We were just talking before recording about how you've got three kids at home today uh, because of a lockdown in Germany. But uh, we're not going to dwell on those things. And instead, <laughs> it's probably best uh, if you could just give us a quick reminder of what this annual publication is all about. Yeah, perfect. And in doing so, I'm going to get a couple of the acronyms out of the way. So the International Carbon Action Partnership, or ICAP, um, we are an intergovernmental partnership for jurisdictions that have implemented or are pursuing mandatory cap and trade programs. So these are also referred to as emission trading systems or ETS. And the SAS report is ICAP's flagship publication um, that we put out once a year. And it really tries to provide a snapshot of ETS developments over the course of that year. So it's um, structured in three parts. The first um, section is contributions um, from our members that are... I guess um, the policymakers that are in charge with designing, um, implementing and administering the systems in their jurisdiction. And they contribute with um, their signed articles on, you know, what's the latest development in those systems as well as the upcoming topics. And this year, we're very lucky to have contributions from, from China as well as from the UK. So two new systems, as well as um, from the European Commission and from the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, just to name a few. 
Um, the middle section of the report is what we call our infographics. And this is where um, the team here really puts a lot of effort in trying to understand what the, I guess, the key themes of the, of the year have been and also what the emerging trends are. And we try to create graphics that then can be used by others in their communications around emissions trading. So you can actually go and download the infographics um, separately from our website. And I welcome really anybody to do that that finds these interesting and useful for their own work. Then lastly, I guess the, um, the, the bulk of the report is over 40 detailed fact sheets on all the systems that are either implemented under development or under consideration. And we, we try to bring um, a structure to the fact sheets um, and really go into the details as to what the design elements of the emission trading systems are. And I guess that's really for people that want to get into the nitty gritty and, and really understand these systems, the, the fact sheets are for you. That's great. And I can just, I just want to second um, the recommendation that those who are interested in this topic at a variety of levels will find really useful resources in this report, which is why we're sort of covering it for the second year in a row is because it's such a valuable resource. I actually use it in my teaching and I use it uh, in my research all the time. And um, so we're going to talk about some region-specific trends over the next few minutes. But before we do that, I think it would be really useful for you to just give us some high-level thoughts about how carbon markets have responded broadly across the world to the enormous and unexpected changes in economic activity and energy use that we've seen this year as a result of COVID-19 and the associated lockdowns. Yeah, um, thanks. It's, it's certainly been a wild year and carbon markets have definitely um, also been affected. So COVID-19 led to um, the lockdowns and then we saw steep declines in economic activities as a jurisdiction sort of um, implemented their various efforts to try to contain the pandemic. So this resulted in a decline in emissions and then a decline in the demand for allowances and allowance prices fell accordingly. And this is, I mean, this is what you'd expect from a market-based instrument like this, but it did also raise some concerns as to how far prices would fall and for how long that they would slump. And I think that's due to the scale of the pandemic that we were witnessing and the, um, the likely impact in terms of the reduced economic activity. And it's also based on um, the memories of the global financial crisis from 2007, 2008. Um, so this led to a long period of sort of um, low prices, particularly in the European Union. And we were, I guess, fresh out of a period of consolidation across carbon markets that had seen a number of reform options put in place and therefore sort of more stable, more predictable and increasing prices. And so there was a moment of concern where we said, okay, well, how, how badly are the markets going to be affected by, by the pandemic? But um, following the initial fall in prices, the vast majority of markets actually stabilized and recovered. So many, many of the prices in the ETS systems around the world actually ended the year either at or above pre-pandemic levels. So this, this begs the question of what's different this time around, and I believe two factors have really contributed. Um, the first is, as I mentioned, there was a period of sort of reform and consolidation in some of the more established systems, and we saw policymakers introduce internal adjustment mechanisms that allow those systems to respond to exogenous shocks in a, in a way that's predictable for the market. So California and Quebec, I think, demonstrate this really nicely. They're, that's the linked markets under the Western Climate Initiative, and they operate with a reserve price at auction. So this means that um, bids at the auction will not be accepted under um, a fixed amount, which is communicated to the market. So when 
um, when the emissions fell and demand fell, um, we did actually see quite a dramatic fall in the in the price in the secondary market. But when the auction came around, allowances were withheld from the auction. They cleared at the reserve price. But this also meant that the secondary market price almost recovered immediately to the reserve price. And there was some commentary around this to say that, um, okay, the market's failing, the auctions aren't selling out. But I think this is a complete misconception. Actually, they were doing exactly what um, they were supposed to do by um, actually withholding some allowances from the market, given the decrease in, in demand that we'd seen around the emission reductions associated with the pandemic. So um, I guess this is important lessons, which made the systems that had reserve prices at auction, I guess, more resilient. I think a similar, similar but different story is true for the European Union emissions trading system. So in 2019, the EU introduced what's called the Market Stability Reserve. And this mechanism actually adjusts auction volumes based on a measure of allowance surplus. So basically, if the allowance surplus is higher than a set threshold, then the auction volumes are reduced. And this is, I guess, a less um, direct way of targeting the market. But what it really communicates is that, yes, there may be a surplus of allowances now, or we may have reduced demand for allowances now, but this will not um, accumulate over the longer term because we have an inbuilt system that will make basically ensure future scarcity. And this allows people to make expectations, um, yeah, I guess, in a slightly more predictable way and provides a bit more confidence in the market. And lastly, if I may, I think what's also different this time around is that um, the emission trading systems are actually far more embedded in in the longer term um, net zero and 2030 targets. So almost all emission trading systems actually sit within jurisdictions that either have net zero targets in law, proposes legislation or in policy documentation. And embedding the, the ETS within this credible long-term framework, I think provides a much more sort of clear picture that high emitting assets, high emitting production process are not going to be um, sort of part of the longer term economy. And that allows people to form expectations around what they think the scarcity of allowances will be going forward. And again, I think this has supported prices through the pandemic. Yeah, that's also interesting. And um really, really cool to sort of see the learning taking place or that has taken place over the last 11, 12 years, uh, as we've learned, you know, from the Great Recession and now entering into this, this new downturn that uh, in, in some cases where the decline in energy demand uh, was, you know, far steeper than what we saw uh, in 2008, 2009. Yeah, absolutely. So let's zoom in a little bit now to some specific parts of the world that have emissions trading systems uh, and just get an update on what's been happening this year. You mentioned a couple of developments uh, around the world already, but let's dig a little deeper. And I think it makes sense to start in Asia, um, largely because you know the world's largest emissions trading program was launched this year uh, in China. Uh, there have been a series of pilot programs uh, over the last several years, and now the nationwide program is launched. Can you give us an overview of that nationwide program? And uh, I don't know if we have enough information uh, to answer this next part of the question, but if we do, it would be great to help us understand how it's functioning so far. Yeah, definitely. Um, so undoubtedly, China takes the spotlight this year with the launch of its national ETS. Um, the system is large. I guess there's no there's no other way to put it. It covers 40% of China's emissions, but this is already 4 billion tons of CO2. And just to get a sense, that's about the same amount of all um, the other programs combined. So it's effectively doubled the number of emissions that are covered by emission trading systems with the launch of this market. 
But um, yeah, we, we also need to temper expectations. I think like most emission trading systems, the China national system will have a soft start. So the system will focus initially on the power sector and it also awards allowances um, freely based on benchmarks. The cap is intensity based. So um, yeah, rather than having an absolute um, uh, absolute target, it actually has an intensity based target where allowances are given out based on these benchmarks and activity or emission levels. And so because of these characteristics, the system has been described by some of your colleagues at RFF as a tradable performance standard rather than your classic cap and trade program. And I think that's accurate. But still, the launch marks a really significant milestone in Chinese climate policy as it sets a framework where the emission trading system can grow in its role over time. So we, we already know that planned adjustments include expansion of the ETS um, to also cover the industrial sectors. And we expect that the system will also transition away from an intensity-based cap towards an absolute-based cap once greenhouse gas emissions peaked in China later this decade. I think lastly, it's also really important to keep in mind that the um, Chinese ETS is operating alongside a much larger um, reform of the electricity market in China. And therefore, it will need to adapt and change um, in its design to fit into the broader evolving regulatory setting. So in terms of how it's functioning to date, I do think it's too early to say. Um, two really important things still need to happen. First, allowances have not yet been allocated to the to the firms participating in the scheme, and there's no registry yet um, to actually track transactions of allowances. But we expect these two things to be in place by June, um, and later this year we will also need covered entities um, or, or the firms participating in the scheme to actually um, comply with the first compliance period or surrender allowances for their emissions in the first compliance period, which includes the emissions of 2019 and 2020 as well. Um, so I guess we will be looking towards the end of the year to sort of see um, the first allowance trades and what everybody will be looking out for is where the price settles. Yeah, I think um, looking at the experience of other systems when they start with these higher shares of free allocation, also restricting the market to just the firms that have compliance obligations rather than, let's say, financial intermediaries and other players. Price discovery can be a little bit slow. Um, but nonetheless, we do have a, we have a best guess provided by the China Carbon Forum. So this is an organization from Beijing that surveys Chinese stakeholders every year on their expectations around the Chinese carbon market. And from the survey that was released um, in February this year, stakeholder expectations are around the seven um, USD per ton of um, for for allowances in the initial stages, and the sort of most people expect this to double or so towards 2030. But um, personally, I'm I'm happy to wait and see. I think yeah. um yeah. Right. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, relatively low price expectations, but certainly above zero, um, which uh, which matters. <laughs> um, so as you noted, China, you know, probably takes the spotlight this year, but there's a lot of other, you know, ETS news uh, from around the world to catch up on. So can you help us understand uh, any other significant developments in trading programs that have happened elsewhere in Asia this year? Yeah, absolutely. So Asia is, is seeing a lot of um, sort of capacity building and policy development um, in a number of different countries. And we really expect um, a, a number of new systems to come from the region in the coming years. I think at the front of the pack there would be Indonesia and Vietnam. 
they're actually taking the legal and regulatory steps at the moment to to put a system in place and we expect to see the launch of their systems in in the years to come um the philippines also has a has a sort of um has a task force within the parliament that is that has been asked to, to come up with legislation for an ets in that region and we're also seeing renewed interest in carbon pricing from japan so japan's a jurisdiction that, that i guess has flirted with carbon pricing on and off over the years but now um as we saw it last year they've they've also committed to a net zero target and they will be seriously considering what role um a carbon price and potentially emissions trading system plays in that transition that's great and for those of you who want a visual whirlwind tour of uh, what's happening around the world. I think it's page 30 of the report. There's this really great infographic map that you know shows all of the countries that have ETS programs in place, under development or under consideration. Uh, and there's lots of richness there uh, for those of you who just want to get a quick visual overview of where these activities are happening. Yeah, thanks. And and to, to just jump back in there, when when you look at the developments taking place in Asia at the moment, I think it's a it's a really interesting question as to what extent these systems are being built in a way that would make them um, compatible for cooperation in a regional market at some future point in time. Yeah. So clearly the focus at the moment is on um, market readiness, policy readiness, but we are seeing renewed interest in carbon clubs and regional cooperation. And ICAP, together with other initiatives, facilitate exchange among policymakers in the region to sort of help recognize design compatibility issues and opportunities, even at an early stage. So this is, um, I guess, you know, something for the medium term that, that we're also interested in. Yeah, that's so interesting and, and will be fascinating to watch over the years. So let's move uh, from Asia now uh, to, uh, to Europe, where, as you noted, uh, there's been uh, significant developments in the European market and uh, significant reforms over the last several years that have resulted in uh, prices in the market reaching uh, up above 40 euros per ton as of a couple weeks ago. Uh, can you help us understand some of the big drivers of those price increases over the last several years and also maybe give us an update on the status of the UK now that Brexit has gone forward? Yeah, I think I can I can help to understand, but I'm I'm not really in the in the the game of forecasting the allowance prices. But I think nobody um, would have expected the prices to reach the levels that they have this time last year, particularly in the face of the pandemic. And when you look at it, I I think you can see both a combination of um, supply and demand side dynamics that are playing out to to result in these price increases. So on the supply side the EU leaders have increased the bloc's target to at least 55% compared to 1990 levels by 2030. So that's up from the previous target of 40%. And I say at least 55%, I think this is likely where it will settle, but there are still groups within the European Parliament that are actually pushing for stronger than this. So and sorry, William, just one quick clarification, 55% below 1990 levels, is that correct? Yes. Great, thank you. Yeah, so, so very simply, this translates to, to less future supply and higher prices. Um, then on the demand side, we're seeing declining shares of free allocation um, for European industry. And this is coupled with increased future price expectations, which I think has, has probably led to increased hedging from um, the industrial entities. And so by hedging, I mean that um, the, the participants may not be just purchasing allowances for today's compliance, but they may also be purchasing allowances for um, future years compliance to sort of lock in some of their exposure to the allowance price risk 
um, if they see this as potentially increasing. And this, again, contributes um, more demand at a time where we're also seeing a sort of contracted supply with the increased um, ambition of the target. Then, in addition, the, the bullish sentiment on future prices, um, combined with changes in the way in which allowances are actually regulated in the EU, has actually seen more interest from um, investment funds as they look to sort of also bring allowances into some of their um, investment portfolios. So this has added, I guess, a new source of demand into the market as well. But for a detailed picture on the price developments, I could um, I can really recommend an article that was run in The Economist um, in, I think, February, which really looked at um, what's happening in the European market and what's driving the prices. And it has some very interesting comments from, I guess, um, yeah, market participants and others that are um, watching the, the price developments far closer than I am. That's great. How about the, the UK? What's uh, the status of that there now? Yeah, sure. So the UK, consistent with um, Brexit, has left the EU ETS and um, they have established also their own system, which is now called the UK ETS. Um, so the UK ETS strongly resembles the EU ETS to begin with. And I think that makes sense. I think it's important to ensure some continuity for the firms that are um, sort of obliged to participate in the, in the scheme. Right. But the, the policymakers in the UK um, have announced that in their sort of um, future carbon pricing consultation that they are looking seriously at changes to the market over the medium term. And I think they're going through a process now to understand what um, changes might be appropriate to make the UK ETS, I guess, most fit for purpose for the, for the UK economy and the targets they have in place and also the broader policies that, that exist in their policy mix. So we know that they are considering um, sectoral expansion to the transport and, and building sectors. They're looking for, for evidence as to whether they should adjust the way which allowances are awarded freely to industries that are trading commodities that are emission intensive and trade exposed and are therefore at risk of emissions leakage. Um, and also how to incentivize greenhouse gas removal units and whether the ETS is the appropriate way to do this and if so, how. Yeah. That's all really interesting. And we're going to come back to that question of sectoral coverage in just a couple minutes. But before we do that, let's round out our <laughs> global tour of ETS uh, programs uh, and and get an update from you on what's been happening in North America, uh, including trading programs at the subnational level in the US and Canada, as well as Mexico. Sure. So it's um, there's also it's a pretty active um, region as well. And so we have 11 systems that are at various stages of development in, in North America. I think this year, when you look at the established markets of California, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is a system that focuses on the power sector of 11 states in the, the Northeast USA, um, I guess this goes back to our initial conversation that these systems have more or less passed the COVID test. And um, they've been pretty focused on on um, on COVID and what that means for the markets and are kind of comfortable with the way in which um, the markets have responded. But there's also a lot of policy development underway. And so for for the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, um, this was a year where Virginia joined the market. And there's other states that have also signaled their interest. And I guess most importantly is Pennsylvania, because Pennsylvania um, is looking to potentially join REGI. And if they were to do that, it would be really significant because they would um, increase the size of the market by almost 75%. So 
So this would be this would really increase the reach of Reggie in on that northeastern seaboard, and um, yeah, that's something to watch over the coming years. Yeah, that is really interesting. And uh, I, but the only thing I would argue with you about is that North Carolina is apparently considering this too. And I'm from North Carolina, which means, of course, it's the most important state uh, to potentially be joining Reggie. <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's a lot of interest actually from from states around there. And I think this is also some of these conversations are are also tied to the um, transport climate initiative. So I guess renewed interest in in general in emission trading systems from some states. So the Transport Climate Initiative, or TCI, um, would establish a, an emissions trading system for transportation fuels. And there's been discussions on the um, TCI for a number of years. And we've seen at the um, in, in March this year, basically the launch of the draft model rule. And so four states in Connecticut, District of Columbia, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island have signed on. But we know that there's been many, many more states that have been very actively contributing to the discussions and the design of that system. And it's set to launch um, in 2023. And my my personal expectation is that we'll have a, a number more states actually participating in the market by then. Then lastly, um, well, moving, moving south, I think um, Mexico is also a really interesting system this year. They've, um, I guess it's difficult to do policy um, in any context in a in the challenges that the pandemic has thrown up. But Mexico actually launched their pilot system this year. And that was fantastic to see. And I think that they've um, gained some really great experience and increased data through that process. And they're now looking at um, what steps need to be taken as they move towards the start of the mandatory phase um, that will take place in a couple of years. Great. That's really interesting. And um, and I know this is such a hard job to walk us through all of these different programs in such a short period of time, but it's just been really informative. So thank you for that, William. Um, let me ask you now one final question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is about sectoral coverage around the world. So there's this really nice infographic on page 29, right next to the map that I referenced, that lays out the different economic sectors that are covered by programs around the world. So you, we can see that electricity and industrial sectors are the most commonly covered, but can you give us a sense of how programs around the world are starting to address other sectors like transportation and buildings? And you've touched on this already, but can you just give us some more color on that issue? Yeah, so this is this is a really um, really hot debate at the moment in Europe and also in North America. And it's, um, it's maybe something that we would need a separate conversation to unpack properly. But um, as you noted, there's, or and as you can see in the status report, there are systems um, such as California, Quebec, Nova Scotia, New Zealand, that have taken a broad approach to system coverage right from the start, and they do cover transportation and heating. Um, I guess there's there's um, benefits of doing this to have a broader, um, more liquid market, and you have a greater proportion of your emissions from the jurisdiction capped by the emissions trading system. But policymakers from these jurisdictions are also quick to recognize that a carbon price is unlikely to drive the transformation of these sectors, given the high abatement costs and other market barriers. And so they also applied other sector-specific policies, such as fuel standards and, and ultimately, um, you know, banning certain types of um, vehicles. Now, in Europe, um, the EU ETS started with just the um, power sector and the industrial sector, added aviation or, or intra-European intra aviation. And the question um, now is, is you know, what to do with, with transport and heating and whether this should be also included in the emissions trading system. And I think central to that debate is whether um, carbon pricing can actually reach levels where it will be effective in inducing real change 
while maintaining its social acceptance. Mm-hmm. And so the conventional wisdom, I guess, from the academic space, um, is that a single economy-wide carbon price is the most efficient approach to reducing emissions. And I think over the longer term, that's not disputed. But in the short term, um, this wisdom has been, I guess, challenged by some academics recently, including Joe Stiglitz, and also by some policymakers that recognize that there's um, barriers that in certain sectors that make them, let's say, more or less carbon pricing ready than others. And I think the one side of the debate in Europe at the moment is that sectoral expansion at this point in time would shift the burden um, of mitigation to the power and industrial sectors while not reaching prices that would actually induce change, the change required in the building and transport sectors. Um, so this is this is kind of where we're at. There's two pretty there's there's camps on either side that are um, that are sort of debating this at the moment. And so as well as sectoral expansion of the EU ETS, there's also been proposals put forward for the creation of a parallel system um, for the heating and transportation um, sectors. So then you would have two different um, systems operating with uh, different caps, different prices in the interim. And this might actually allow some time to invest in some of those deployment challenges that sort of um, make carbon pricing, let's say, challenging in the transport sector at the moment, such as EV charging stations, um, low carbon public transit systems, um, which I guess means that then um, makes these systems potentially more ready for for a broad-based carbon price in the future. And I think this is the approach that we're seeing in Germany that has launched a national ETS for the transport and building sector this year. And I guess it also mirrors um, the approach taken in the Northeast US where we have Reggie for the power sector and a separate system of TCI, um, so the Transport Climate Initiative for the transportation sector. And the interesting question is then, um, if you go down this path, at what point would you like to potentially connect the two systems? And if you do design them in a way with this in mind, I think it could be relatively easy to implement a one-way link or um, a indirect link of allowances between the two systems and then slowly sort of open up trade between um, covered entities or participants of both systems and ultimately reach a, a single broad-based carbon price um, at some point in the future. But I think I, I would like to point out that no matter um, which approach is taken, it's clear that a package of policies um, is necessary to move at the speed that's required to align um, you know, all sectors with the Paris Agreement. And so the, the European Commission will make a proposal um, for what happens in Europe later this year. And yeah, all eyes will be on on that in the first instance to see how this might play out in Europe. Absolutely. That's going to be so interesting to watch. And um, and I, I really hear you on that debate over prices versus standards. I mean, I think we're, we're having that in the US right now over a variety of sectors, uh, not just transport and uh, in buildings, but even in the, in the power sector too. Um, so that's probably something we should do a podcast episode on in the, <laughs> in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but let's uh, close it out there. William, thank you so much for, uh, for all that great information. Let's move now to our top of the stack segment where we ask you what you've read or watched or heard recently that you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll start with a very short uh, actually repeat of a recommendation, which is uh, Elizabeth Colbert's Under a White Sky it's a new book about um, how humans are dealing with 
problems that humans have created uh, when it comes to the environment. And we were actually able to get her on the show. So we're going to have Elizabeth Colbert on the show in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so uh, check out her book, Under a White Sky, so you can get a primer uh, before that conversation. But how about you, William? What's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Well, um, that, that sounds like a great book, so it might have shifted um, up to the top as well, but I look forward to the to the podcast. Um, it's a, yeah, it's been a difficult year to find time to, um, to sort of read it, I must say, but I'm, I'm looking forward to reading Bill Gates's new book on how to avoid a climate disaster. And I think most, mostly because, uh, I like the idea of focusing on solutions, um, and to, to see where, where we need to go in this space. But, um, what is actually on the top of my stack at the moment, which I've started, um, and is a great book is Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life. Oh yes. I love that book. Yeah. It's a it's a really great account of it of um, William Finnegan, a surfer who's basically travels the world in search of waves, and yeah, it's the perfect escapism for for myself as a surfer from Australia that's kind of stuck in Berlin at the moment, um, without the opportunity to chase waves. So this is this is what I've been reading. That's great. Yeah, I've never stood up on a surfboard successfully, but that book uh, just made me love surfing and made me want to be a surfer and uh, do some of the things that he does in that book. <laughs> well, it's never too late. <laughs> so William Ackworth from the International Carbon Action Partnership, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.